none of us like being trapped. But the majority of people are trapped by something that's fascinating, popular, deceitful, but sinful. Let me illustrate. Years ago, there was a man who loved diamonds. A friend described his house. His house resembles a castle rather than a mansion. It's surrounded with a lofty wall, one which no one can climb without giving alarm. His treasure is kept in a safe, let in the wall of his bedroom, so that it cannot be reached without first waking or murdering the owner. The safe is so constructed that it cannot be forced without discharging four guns and setting an alarm bell a-ringing in every room. His bedroom, like a prisoner's cell, has but one small window, and the bolt and lock of the massive door are of the stoutest iron. In addition to these precautions, a case containing twelve loaded revolvers stands by the side of his bed. Well, it's laughable, is it not? Tell me, does this man really possess his diamonds? Or do his diamonds possess him? You remember King Midas? Everything he touched turned to gold. What wouldn't you give for that? For an ability to touch and turn to gold. Anything one wished. Well, King Midas touched his daughter. And lo, to his surprise, she turned to gold. He hadn't expected that. She not only turned to gold, she ceased to breathe. And then he touched his food. And it seemed that he would soon cease to eat. He touched his drink and it became a little golden sea. Perhaps turning things to gold is not all it's cracked up to be. There's an Arabian story of a ruler who, at the sack of his city, was shut up in his treasure chambers and starved to death among bars of gold and sparkling gems. This is not only a possibility for the physical nature in extreme conditions. It's far more true of the better part of man, his spiritual nature. Remember the man with the muckrake in Bunyan's story, Pilgrim's Progress? He was raking away at the garbage and saw nothing of the golden crown that was over his head being offered him by an angel. Many a man intent on gathering his grain that filled his barns forgot to lay hold of the better bread of life. We all know the story of Cortez. When he came to Mexico, he was asked by the states what commodities or drugs he wanted. He was promised an abundant supply. He and his Spaniards, said Cortez, had a disease at their hearts which nothing but gold could cure. And he had received word that Mexico abounded with it. Under the pretense of a friendly conference, he made Montezuma his prisoner and ordered him to pay tribute to Charles V. Immense sums were paid, but the demand was boundless. Tumults ensued. Cortes displayed amazing generalship, but some millions of the natives were sacrificed 
to the disease of covetousness. For covetous, my friends, is a disease, a popular disease, a deceitful disease, a deadly disease. Our Lord told a story warning us about this trap. For covetous seems so respectable that it becomes a cheat to all who pursue it. Here was our Lord's warning in story form. And one out of the multitude said unto him, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And Jesus said unto them, Take heed and keep yourselves from all covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he reasoned within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have not where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night is thy life required of thee, and the things which thou hast prepared, who shall they be? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. That's Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Now the hero of this story, should we call him that? The fool of this story the foolish wise man. He was what almost all of us would like to be. He was what almost all of us are striving to be. He was rich, prosperous, successful. All men thought him very wise indeed. But God, God called him a fool. We're told the point of the story very clearly. The warning is against covetousness. It's been said that genius is a tumour on an ordinary faculty, and covetousness is like that. For there's nothing wrong in having enough money for one's needs, to care for one's family, to be able to do one's necessary work. We inhabit a material world. We live in material bodies. Not a vacuum, but in a realm of things we exist. And possessions are needed to enhance man's freedom. It's even doubtful if character in this world can be complete without them. Things are the tools of living. A workman is helpless without tools. And as George Buttrick has reminded us, if life is constantly threatened in its physical nature, character is also threatened. An unequal study for daily bread saps mind and spirit as well as body. When a man who's accustomed to live from hand to mouth finally achieves property, then he's reached a critical fork in the road. Thereafter, he'll walk either in sturdier manhood or in the folly of an acquisitive life. Possessions may fulfil their perfect work or they may smother him. Now there's the problem. It's right to have a certain amount of things. God does not condemn riches. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the excessive love of money. But it's sometimes like food. 
who can tell the dividing line between what is sufficient for hunger and what is sufficient for appetite. Jesus did not indiscriminately condemn wealth. It's true, he bade the rich young ruler sell all and follow. But that was an individual surgery. That was not a universal rule from Jesus. He did not require poverty as indispensable for discipleship. His first followers, they weren't called from penury. They were called from homes of some comfort. They did follow a homeless man, but he didn't sentence them to ascetic poverty. He came eating and drinking. There was a certain well-to-do centurion who built a synagogue for the town, who won favour in the eyes of Christ. Then there was the Bethany home, to whose hospitable friendliness our Lord owed sheltering joy. That home was a home of some substance. Even the very robe of Jesus for which the soldiers cast lots may not have been of fine linen, but it was worth owning. And so we must say, as George Adam Smith said years ago, a certain degree of prosperity and even of comfort is necessary for the free exercise of religious faculties. Yet, what a devastating warning against excessive love of property is found in this story by Jesus. We do well to note his take heed. Jesus is saying that covetousness is idolatry, that it is a false worship, that though it's a respectable sin, an almost universal sin, though it's so subtle, it is yet fatal. The love of money is almost the only vice that a man can entertain while he preserves his appearance of piety. But from Scripture we learn that Balaam, Achan, Gehazi, Judas, Demas, and a multitude of others lost their way through covetousness. Covetousness robs the life of its best while promising to put something into life. Covetousness makes us fret continually at the workings of providence. We keep demanding more and more. We become dissatisfied with our homes and with our surroundings. The heart becomes hardened. The benevolent affections are destroyed. Our covetousness gradually crystallises into habit and principle. It narrows and pinches the whole being. It grows the stronger by indulgence. The more it has, the more it wants. The more it gets, the tighter it grasps it. And covetousness is responsible for crime. Sociologists tell us again and again that the desire for more ultimately ruins the fabric of society. A strong desire to get confuses the judgment as to the proper means of getting and gradually becomes unscrupulous in the use of means. Ultimately, all hesitation is overcome. All restraints are broken through. All dangers are braved. Get it will at all hazards. Not that every covetous man becomes a criminal, but this is the tendency in every case. When we remember that all overreaching, all petty deception and cheating is in reality crime, it will go hard with the covetous man to clear his skirts.
There's a vast amount of crime unseen by the law, but perfectly open to the view of heaven. Much of the known crime of the world, some of it the most atrocious and unnatural, springs directly from covetousness. Whence comes the reckless speculation, the stock jobbing and gambling which agitate the markets and unsettle trade. Whence the breaches of trust, the forgeries which startle us by their frequency and enormity. Whence the robberies, burglaries, murders, which have affrighted every age and still fill our sleeping hours with danger. The answer's plain, from the desire to get, cherished until it would not be denied. Such a desire, in time becomes overmastering, it balks at nothing, and out of it spring crimes of every name and form, from the littlest to the most colossal, from the murder of a reputation to the murder of a nation, from the betrayal of a single soul, unknown to the world, to the betrayal of the Son of God. Undoubtedly, history is filled with the evidences that covetousness destroys the individual and it destroys the society. It makes men forget that we are rich not according to what we have, but what we are. When Jesus spoke about happiness, and that's a great sermon from the Mount, he said, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Please note, his blessings are pronounced according to what men are, not according to what men have. Well, as we look at the man in our Lord's story, we've already noticed that he was wise. He knew how to fill his barns. His investment was a wise one. Land cannot be consumed by fire or removed by foe. He understood his business. He was industrious. He was careful. He was frugal. He knew how to save. He was highly respected and influential. Yet, he was a fool. He was a bad calculator. He undertakes to solve the problem of life and proves a wretched bungler in the use of figures. He omits the greatest factor in the problem. God forgotten, the problem works out wrong. My friend, there it is. If God is forgotten in life, the life will not work out. This is the deceptiveness of covetousness. God is forgotten. We're not rich towards heaven. Furthermore, this man made a wrong estimate of his soul and he made a wrong distribution of his goods. He made a wrong calculation of time. He thought he had many years. I will say to my soul, soul, eat, drink and be merry. He thought he had time to do that. He had the goods, but he did not have the years. He said to his soul, take thine ease. Here the man's all animal. Yes, his mistake is he's left God out of his calculations. Do you remember the shipwrecked mariner on an inhospitable island perishing with famine? 
One day a box was suddenly swept ashore and he rushed eagerly to loosen its fastenings, but he fell back in fainting disappointment and consternation, saying, Alas, it's only some passenger's pearls. And this soul of ours is at last on the eternal shore, unready and unfurnished. Will its undying hunger be appeased with indigestible jewels of earthly opulence alone? Will it be merry then? Opulent men grow old just like other people. And some die before they grow old. May I repeat it. The folly of this man appears in the fact that he completely ignored his responsibility to God in the matter of his possessions. He speaks throughout as if he had all the merit of his prosperity. He gives God no praise. The idea that any portion of the increase of his fields belonged to God seems never to have entered into his mind. Does this man stand alone in that? Are we not all too prone to take to ourselves the sole credit for any prosperity which we've acquired? He'd come by his wealth probably honestly, the man of our Lord's parable. It doesn't say that he added field to field by oppression or that he devoured widows' houses by fraud or cheat the hireling in his wages. He wasn't even a miser. He said to himself, take thine ease, eat, drink and be merry. Not a miser. Foresighted, practical. But, but he was an egotist. Things are a jealous God, they brook no rival. His soliloquy, as translated in some versions, occupies just 61 words, but I occurs six times in that brief monologue. My or thine, addressed to himself, six times. He has no thought for God. My fruits, he called them. My grain. In what sense were they his? Could he command the sap in the tree? Could he command the fertility of the soil? Was he responsible for the sunrise and the sunset? What about the faithfulness of the returning seasons? Was that because of his merit? How would he have managed if the rain had been withheld by heaven? Even the scripture says the ground brought forth plentifully. All he could do, as George Buttrick tells us, was to take nature's tides at the flood. He called all these things of his mind. And that's why God called him a fool. He forgot that other men too had enriched him. He didn't plough, reap and build barns single-handed. He had no gift of sympathy. Were there no people nearby that were poor? Augustine said that the widow and the ill should have become this man's barns. He forgot that there are no pockets in a shroud. He forgot that he he couldn't take it with him. How much did he leave? asked one man of a friend, as they were talking of a millionaire, whose death had been announced in the morning paper. How much did he leave? All he had. That was the solemn reply. All he had. It wasn't what this man had, but it's what he lacked. That was his undoing. 
a wealthy agriculturalist took a friend to show him his property. They stood on a slight summit and he pointed to the east. And he said, all that is mine. And then he pointed to the west and he said, all that is mine. And then the north, all that is mine. He turned to the south and he said, as far as your eye can see, all that is mine. His friend looked at him, then pointed upwards and said, how much do you own up that way? What did Jesus mean by being rich toward God? Jesus meant this. We are stewards of the Almighty. It is God who gives us our ability to get wealth. Every breath, every heartbeat is by his permission. To forget our stewardship is the most crass folly. We shouldn't be nervous when people remind us of our obligations with our wealth. In the recorded sayings of Jesus, about one verse in every six talks about money or possessions. About half his parables do the same. The Bible's just full of warnings against being absorbed with things. Man cannot live without things, but he who lives for things alone is not a man, but a beast. Things can't satisfy the heart. One can toss a hundred thousand worlds into the sun and leave room for more. And put in the heart all that this world has to offer. And there's still a great space left. Possessions don't do what we think they do. Nothing's as good in the hand as it is in the head. Nothing's ever as satisfying in the getting as we thought it would be in the thinking about it aforetime. Our much goods in the Western world hasn't brought the Western world peace. One Oriental writer wrote in this way about our folly. You call your thousand material devices labour-saving machinery, yet you are forever busy. With the multiplying of your machinery, you grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous, dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. Wherever you are, you want to go somewhere else. You have a machine to dig the raw material for you, a machine to manufacture it, a machine to transport it, a machine to sweep and dust, one to carry messages, one to write, one to talk, one to sing, one to play at the theatre, one to vote, one to sew, and a hundred others to do a hundred other things for you. And still, you are the most nervously busy people in the world. Your devices are neither time-saving nor soul-saving machinery. They are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery and to do more business.
Now that's hard to refute, is it not? What, friends, shall we say then to these things? How shall we save ourselves from this trap of covetousness? How shall we avoid being like the foolish wise man? May I remind you that God's people of old gave up to one-third of their income for religious purposes. We live in a more privileged era and every Christian should have as his dearest desire to give all he can to foster the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says, Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. My friend, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, left the adoration of heaven, heaven, where the stars were the fringe of his robe. He exchanged it all for a stable, for a cowshed, and for a cross. As we behold that, what shall we withhold from him? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Giving is the antidote to selfishness and covetousness. Only those who practice regular, systematic giving to the gospel cause will be safe and saved at last. God guide you, my friend, as you reflect on perhaps several avenues that you know of where the gospel is being preached with power for the blessing of others. As you reflect on these, ask God your duty as to how to help in the spreading of the word of his infinite generosity and love. May we become like him by giving like him. God bless you.